Hello, and welcome to Decades Podcast Season 2. This is a podcast where three hosts and the occasional guest watch a couple of movies, one from a previous decade all the way back to the 19-teens, and one from the now times. And then we talk about movies, we talk about history, trivia, culture, society, and for Season 2, we get to talk about politics. And now, on to the episode. Just like my flock of sheep. We want to know what you intend to give away to the communists. He will bring destruction to our traditions. He looked in his heart and he thought in all humility how he'd like to try and change things. Rip off this city for a hundred grand? It's a groovy thing to do. I propose to demand from the House the immediate removal of the President of the United States. Well... Is there anything you'd like me to say to them? And by them, I mean the Supreme Court Justices of the United States? I tell the judge I'd go my way. Hello, this is Decades Podcast, and we are recording episode four today. Yay! Whoop, whoop. Uh, Introducing. I'm Nicole Estry. Uh, James Payne. Karen Hernandez here. Jacob Kaikendall. Deb Kaikendall. Let's do that again. Going counterclockwise order. And introducing Nicole Estry. Deb Kaikendall. Jacob Kaikendall. And we have two guests today. I'm guest one, Karen Hernandez. And I'm James Payne. Hello. Um, maybe Karen and James, could you describe your relationship to this podcast? Why you brought on as guests today? Well, I was um, I was a co-host on the season one of Decades podcast. I don't know if you remember this crazy voice, Who? Uh, this voice. Um, but I was I was part of season one, and now I'm I'm a guesting on this episode of season two, which is on interracial relationships. I wanted to be a guest on this episode because I'm in an inter interracial relationship with <gasps> Jacob Kuykendall. Hello. Who's Deb's son. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I am a uh, boyfriend of lovely uh, Nicole Westry. Um, she is lovely. <laughs> and I, I guess uh, I should also point out that I'm white and she's... Uh, not the <laughs> West White, which apparently qualifies me to be part of this discussion about interracial relationships. So. That's right. Well, we should probably say we watched two movies. One was uh, from 1930, Borderline, uh, starring Paul Robeson and his wife as Londa Robeson and uh, the guy, the, the other guy, the white guy. Yeah, I can't remember his name, but he is he playing Thorn. Uh, yeah, whoever played yeah, Thorn. Yeah, Thorn. Uh, he well, whoever he is, he's the great grandson of the twenty-first president of the United States. Who was the twenty-first president of the United States? <laughs> I can't remember his name, so I can't tell you. Is it not Thorn? It was Thorn. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Clinton, old, old President Thorn. Yeah. yeah. I guess and, an Adam. Um, there were a few of those. Yeah. So Borderline was about ostensibly about an interracial affair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other movie we watched was Loving from twenty sixteen, which is definitely about an interracial relationship. And the Supreme Court case that uh, legalized interracial marriage. Well, it made the it made a law against interracial marriage unconstitutional. Yeah, which for nationwide the... loving yes. v. Virginia for all you law nerds. Yeah, <laughs> whoop whoop. So the first thing that we need to try to do is synopsize borderline. 
And I said I would do this because I was one of the last people <laughs> to put my finger on my nose. I said I would help. <laughs> so, this is a movie from 1930. I thought you said 1928. Nope, no, nope, no. Nope. That was Power of the Press. Oh, uh, okay, 1930. This movie is from 1930. It's an avant-garde film. And it is an avant-garde film, for sure, having watched it. Um, filmed in... Sweden. Sweden. Uh, British Film Institute produced. Um, it focuses on the relationship between two couples. There is Pete and Ada, uh, two, uh, a black couple, and Thorn and Astrid, uh, a white couple of let's say Swedish nationality possibly <laughs> well they never really locate the movie they don't um, when the movie starts Ada is having an affair on Pete with Thorn she is being confronted by Astrid to, who tells her get out of here go back to your boyfriend or husband I think it would be helpful if we pointed out that Pete is the black man Thorn is the white man Ada is the maybe mixed race um wife of Pete mm -hmm. and Astrid is the white wife of Thorn. That's right. So Ada is leaving her relationship with Thorn, her, her affair from uh, we assume previous relationship with Pete. Uh, she leaves Thorn, she goes back to Pete. Thorn seems like a pretty bad guy for most of the movie. He's somewhat abusive and suffers a lot of anguish. Somewhat abusive. Loves that knife. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is an apartment that a lot of this takes place in that I think we decided was Ada's apartment that is located above a bar where a lot of the scenes take place. Uh, the two, two of the other main characters are the bar manager and the barmaid, I think. Um, and the piano player. Mm -hmm. He's pretty, he figures Yeah, pretty he does. Pretty. There's also an old woman and a guy with glasses. And a cat. TBD, cat. what yeah. their names Stuff's are. Too. Um, but Ada leaves Thorn. She goes back to Pete, who is very—he was very innocent, and also see. It seems like maybe he does not realize there was an affair going on. She must have just left him undeterminately. Um, they get back together. Things seem like they're going to be okay, although uh, Ada has feels very guilty. Um, Astrid and Thorn have. Uh, have an art have some arguments the people in the bar particularly an old woman who looks somewhat witchy um are ups are upset because pete is a black man um and ada was is a black woman in a relationship with a white man or was um i was a little unclear about what the gist of what what the uh exact details of this issue was but they are obviously upset um they use the n-word a couple times to describe the the situation and describe ada and and I, Pete. by they i think you mean astrid and the townspeople yeah right? yeah it seemed like they were looking for an excuse to get the non-white people out of their town the barmaid yes. seemed okay with all of it mm -hmm. the manager was obviously against them and the barmaid and maybe the manager seem like they might be in a homosexual relationship, mm -hmm. although it is more implied than explicitly shown. There's a scene where they're basically holding each other. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and one is kind of like feminine, and the other one is sort of like more masculine looking. Yeah, um, it's a the the story is a little hard because it is a silent film. There's very little dialogue, even in text on the screen, um, and it relies a lot on symbolism and and meta- visual metaphor to, to get its point across. I would interject. It's symbolism we don't that maybe is not in that we don't understand it's from a different time period maybe could be we made our best guesses <laughs> except for yeah. the ace of spades mm-hmm. which i understood 100 percent. the yeah. timelessness of death <laughs> that's right and there's a cat in it who catches a goldfish that's the timelessness in... of cats <laughs> <laughs> um, so ada and pete get back together pete seems generally very happy about everything throughout this movie so he seems pretty chill uh, eventually, Thorne finds out that Ada has gone back to Pete. He's very upset. Um, he seems to rile up the townsfolk a little bit uh, on this about this. Ultimately, Astrid and Thorne get into a fight. She grabs a knife, but he steals the knife away and kills her with it. Um, he goes to he. Turns himself in apparently to the police. This part was a little unclear till after the fact, but he turns Thorn turns himself into the police. Uh, Pete is essentially run out of town because the townsfolk blame him for the death. Uh, Ada leaves Pete because she feels so guilty that Astrid is, has been killed. Um, Thorn is acquitted of the crime. He men's fences with pete who's who is still run out of town and the film ends with pete who's upset because he's lost his love and also run out of town is waiting for a train and thorn is sad and sitting in a field and ada is sad because her i guess friend somebody died on on account of her relationship Technically, the movie ended with the bar manager or whatever closing the book. <laughs> yes. Closing the bar book to symbolize that this, is, this movie's done. This movie's over and we're closing the book on it. Um, there are also a number of characters at the bar of somewhat unclear relationship who mostly seem to be representing the townsfolk and reacting to what these couples are going through. Yeah, it seemed like the oldest people in the town were the ones who were most against the non-white people being part of their community. Yeah. And then it seemed like the younger non-white people in the town were kind of like, eh, stuff happens, and the non-white people sometimes get run out of town, and that's life. It happens. Thor, yeah, Thorne clearly is not in favor of this, but yeah. he also has his own problems. One thing I wanted to point out, too, is that earlier you said that Thorne was somewhat abusive, but... He murders his wife or girlfriend or whatever, and I would say that that's a unnecessary qualifier. That he is very abusive and he is a murderer. So he's a murderer. Although she, well, she attacked she him. Was was yeah, was they were both abusive. This is true. Both of them are, but you know, he he's not somewhat abusive. He they they were both parties to domestic violence. Yeah, the movie possibly because of the time is a little bit uh, obfuscates the abuse a little bit. I guess is what I was trying to get at. Um, very little of it appears on screen, but you can tell he has problems. I think we he can all agree that nobody in a healthy state of mind just sits in a room alone and rubs a knife all over their yes. face. No, that's a bad side sign. Yeah. Agree. Which is something that Thorne did. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, in fact, I find it difficult to understand what anyone saw in Thorne or Astrid because of their general behavior in this movie. He rocks that sweater. That's I, true. <laughs> Uh, but that's the synopsis as far as I'm calling it. I think the movie is more about 
imagery than about storyline. So yes. there were lots of, well, at some point, I think it was Karen who commented that there weren't, oh, maybe it was Nicole who said something about there aren't any wide shots. It's all mm-hmm. close as Nicole. It's all as close as you can possibly get to a person's face or a person's hand or the shape of a person's hands mm-hmm. or. Uncomfortably close. Yeah. There's a lot of shot. It's very quickly shot for a lot of it. Lots of quick edits. And some of them will be like a scene of Pete and Astrid talking interspersed with scenes of a wheat field or people playing on the kids playing on the street um and they're not long shots but it's like a lot of visual maybe metaphor but just visual stuff is going on at one point i was reminded of i I thought there was a scene and i thought this is like a photograph i would have taken when i was taking photography class and developing my own black and white pictures right so really good is that where you're going with this (laughs) well (laughs) introspective i guess Maybe. Yeah, I see that. Um, but no, not that great. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to picture the filmmakers just being in some town in like Sweden or whatever. They're like, oh, there's some wheat fields. That's nice. Let's get some shots of that, you know, and they throw it in the movie somewhere. <laughs> I think, but, James, you were talking about how it was like almost like pictures of where they went for vacation and they said, oh, I'll just throw this in the film or something. <laughs> there's a good spot for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it really has a fast pace, but. It it's, seemed mm, slow. But it, it seemed slow. Yeah. You know what I thought about this movie? Are we done with the synopsis? Can I move on I to I say my, yes, we are my, done. <laughs> my uh, noggin scratching. What I thought about this movie was that, like in Loving, most of the focus was on the white male in the movie. Mm-hmm. And so this is foreshadowing my thoughts on Loving, but yeah. The, Spoiler alert. This, I think it's foreshadowing my thoughts on yeah, Loving Yeah. Well. You know, the, this movie, Borderline, focused on the the um, emotional anguish and like the story arc of the of Thorn, the white guy um, who was, I guess, his he was cheating on his girlfriend with Pete, the black guy's wife or girlfriend. Yeah. And um, it was just all about him, mainly about him. And I just thought like, oh, I don't know. Some of these movies, like I, I want to hear more about Ada's point of view, maybe even Astrid's point of view. Like it's it's really... Or Pete, like Pete doesn't seem to have yeah. much of a character himself. Happy or sad, of, Pete? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He seemed angelic. I mean, they framed mm-hmm. him with clouds behind him frequently. Mm-hmm. He was like this thing up above, with the sky behind him, and that was his. That's how we were meant to feel about him. Yeah, like he's kind of the innocent here. So sort of. let me tell you some details about the people who made this movie, which may change some of your thoughts about the movie, actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this movie was made by, I think I think his name is Kenneth McPherson, a British filmmaker with his wife, Briar, who played the manager, the, the hotel manager. Okay. And uh, they formed a film company uh, called Pool Films. And I'm probably going to get some of this wrong. Sorry, history people. Um, <laughs> Everyone look this up on Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, Confirm. The person who played the bar... Oh, no, it was Astrid was played by a woman named Helga Doolittle, who was <laughs> referred to as HD. She was a poet. She had affairs with both Briar and Kenneth McPherson. Mm-hmm. Um, <gasps> Briar was... Both were gay, I believe. Um, and then at some point, they adopted Helga Doolittle's 12-year-old daughter as their own as their daughter um so they had you know this is kind of for the 1930s they had very what progressive country was this england they're okay. from england 
Um, but they moved to Sweden so that they wouldn't have quite as much oversight from the British film company, British film uh, I don't know, censorship, right, or whatever mm. was going on there. They didn't want to be, they wanted to make movies that were about controversial subjects mm. like interracial relationships, homosexuality, that kind of thing. Uh, which for the 30s is pretty progressive. Sure. Uh, the guy who played Thorne wrote a book, and I can't remember the name of the book right now, but it was basically about how sexuality is a is a spectrum, like mm-hmm. something that we we agree to today, but it was probably not. Well, when you say 30s. we, that's not a <laughs> uh, America. Yeah, that is well, even America, America is not. Right. That is not a. I think majority view i uh, don't know yeah, right. it's getting there maybe so yeah we are a little more open to the idea that sexuality is on a spectrum than they were in the 30s 70 years he wrote later a, he wrote an he wrote a book that was reviewed by the new york times um about how you know people fall between you know it was more like a circle actually it wasn't a, it was not a it wasn't an arch it was sort mm-hmm. of a circle and people fall somewhere on this circle of sexuality mm-hmm. so that was the guy who played thorn hmm. in this movie Okay, that's pretty cool. I don't know if that changes my Feeling thoughts on the movie. Right. Um, the other, the other thing about this movie is that it uh, starred Paul Robeson, who was. Do any of you know who Paul Robeson is? Before I didn't, we started no. talking about, nope, this. not me. Okay, so at one point in time, up until about the fifties, he was internationally famous and was probably one of the most famous entertainers in the world for, let's say, ten to twenty years. And so you would think that you would know about him now, right? Mm-hmm. You know about Frank Sinatra, you know about Dean Martin, who was mm-hmm. not nearly as famous as Paul Robeson was mm-hmm. at his height. Um, but he got into a little trouble in the 50s. I mean, he was an activist. So, it, oh, I had said that I would play a little bit of a song from uh, that I had performed in in yeah. high school that he famously performed um, for a few times live in theaters and then they played it on CBS Hour or whatever it was like in 1939 I believe okay. and the name of the song is Ballad for Americans and it basically goes through the history of America and there's a mysterious figure who's the narrator of this song and it turns out that the, that the narrator is America and so there's this repeated repeated refrain of you know who I am and it's the like chorus, a plot yeah it's about 10 minutes long um, it's extremely patriotic and people really were into it in 1939. Yeah, sure. Right. I queued something up, and I hope this is going to work. Um, this is just a, sh- a small part of it. This is uh, Paul Robeson singing. What happened was he he went to uh, the Soviet Union, and this was at a time when we were just starting to hate the Soviet Union, right? Uh, he went Ooh. there and he saw that African Americans were treated as equals there, hmm. and he did not he did not become a communist, but he did have a lot to say about how how African Americans were not treated equally here, and how he admired that about the Soviet Union, that they were basically as equal as anyone else, because that's what communism is, right? What the communists uh, showed him in the Soviet Union, right. anyway. Yeah. Yeah, then some other stuff happened that was not so great. <laughs> <laughs> Hits and misses. Yeah, there, were, there were some problems in the, in the Soviet Union, but... Um, 
put it to put it lightly. Right. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he got he got um, he was made to testify before the House on American Activities. Um, oh, Com- committee. Committee. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he, he it's just I I sent you guys a link which you may or may not have listened I have to. Not listened to it. His testimony is awesome. It's just awesome, and you should listen to it. He um, was a had a very uh, powerful speaking voice for one thing you can hear from his you know mm-hmm. was low and it was he had studied diction and he uh, just had a powerful speaking voice and he had some very powerful things to say didn't you say he was a lawyer too in addition to being a singer and yeah he studied yeah, law um, he was also a very well-known football player at the college level man that guy did everything he did everything <laughs> it's true and i believe he's a he triple was, threat if i remember yeah. correctly he was valedictorian and also uh he was a debater and he won all the debates he should have been our president yeah instead of whoever it was at that time <laughs> yeah, i mean anyone could be president now yeah um so the reason that he was not a lawyer at least this is a story that was told in the doc- in one of the documentaries that i watched about him was that he was hired by a white uh, law firm out of college this would have been in the 1930s i think mm-hmm. um but he at some point he asked the secretary to come in and take dicta- dictation and she said i don't take dictation from let's just say the n-word mm. um and so he's he because he could not reach the height of being a lawyer he couldn't be the best at being a lawyer or reach the highest level he said well i'm not going to do that at all yeah, I'm be, i want to be the best of whatever i'm doing I don't remember exactly how he got into singing or acting. I do know that in 1924, which I thought was interesting, the first play that he was in on Broadway was a play called All God's Children, All God's Children Got Wings, which is a Eugene O'Neill play about interracial relationships. Um, It was the same year that the racial integrity law was made in Virginia, outlawing interracial marriages Mm. in Virginia. That ties it all together. Sort of. (laughs) <laughs> in a way. Back, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the movie that we just watched was made only six years after that law was passed in mm-hmm. Virginia. And it's, it's weird to think of, we're kind of, I think we're kind of in the same situation now, right? Where, where there's like a lot of people who, like what I said, the, uh, who believe sexuality is on a spectrum or, and then there's these people who, like Mike Pence, who think, who are still living in what feels like us to the past, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, which is kind of off the subject of Paul Robeson. But, um, I see where you're going with this, though. <laughs> but there's just sort of all these overlapping things happening throughout history where it's still happening. We're not... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if that'll, all, if that'll ever change where, like, the new ideas are met with the old ideas and the old ideas feel like they've just really got to crash into the new ideas to slam them down like i just feel like that is always how it's going to be you know when when the new ideas start coming in and more and more people start to buy into it or not buy into it but just like believe it like for example i don't know if i maybe everyone in this room might might agree to a certain extent that sexuality is on a spectrum and um you know that's it 100% 100% of people in this room, so... Maybe, <laughs> so it's everybody. Yeah, maybe it's our, maybe it's a, a lot of our listeners feel that way, too. And I think that when older, when um, old, out-of-date ideas are aware that these new ideas are starting to, um, what is it, build in mm-hmm. their acceptance, Become, yeah. then they just feel like they've got to fight back. 
Right. It's, it's all... like the it's like white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you they feel challenged, mm-hmm. and so they have to fight back, and I think that's the situation that we're in. Mm-hmm. Oh. We've kind of gotten off the whole. <laughs> I wanted to add one one thing to, to to Karen's thought there, which is that I saw a it was an infographic, but it was a survey that was done of British citizens. Um, basically in different age groups showing it was men and women surveyed of different age groups saying well on a scale somewhat related saying on a scale of and it was like one to ten how masculine or feminine do you see yourself and it was like a one is 100% masculine and a ten is 100% feminine and where do you find yourself and showing the younger you are the younger your age group is the more you end up towards the middle of that spectrum. Basically, mm-hmm. as, as generations have gotten younger, people do not see themselves in as strict of a gender role or see themselves as as on as much of the ends of the poles of the spectrum, which is not directly related to what we're talking about, but it is, I think, an example of how as uh, these generations, the younger generations have maybe more uh, have different values, and, mm-hmm. and it is almost an age. There's a, there's an age break here for some of these things. But then some of it is not even related to age too. I mean, there's there's probably you know there, homosexuality and and not quite male, not quite female has been around for ages. It's just it's just now that we're starting to get we're starting to pin a label to it, or we're starting to look at it more closely. Yeah. Or we're we're. I guess now we're just not completely ignoring it. And also, it's also Britain, which is a very small... It does not have the huge different geographic areas that we have they as don't, much but here. They have had anti-homosexual laws on the books up until very recently, and yeah. maybe even still. I'm not sure that... I don't know whether they've been overturned or not. I know that... I mean, I assume that culturally or... I assume this. I don't know this for right. fact, but I, None of us are from Britain. Socially or culturally... They're probably more progressive, but their laws were, have not been. Yeah. Brexit, anybody? <laughs> <laughs> um, should we move on to the current movie? Loving. Oh, I didn't finish what I was saying about oh, Paul Robeson. Sorry. <laughs> so what happened was the government basically came down on him. They took away his passport. This was a man who traveled internationally, performed internationally. He performed Othello uh, mm. on the British stage and here mm-hmm. which was I don't know if he was I, I assume he was the first black man to play Othello here in America hmm. in a, I, I assume that's true and I think I think it is Could be. We'll <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong not. I'm pretty sure that's true tweet at us um, or whatever <laughs> and he was extremely popular like like generally throughout America he's very handsome mm-hmm. he's very <laughs> handsome uh, very powerful very tall good singing voice um but then, you know, this socialism thing, he, he went to Paris and he made a speech basically saying, I'm not sure why African-Americans would fight for a country that doesn't give them equality or something. I'm paraphrasing. I mean, snaps mm-hmm. to that, though. Right. And he didn't say they wouldn't fight. He would just what more was saying, you know, why would they fight? Posing They're, the question. Right. Yeah, what's Making people think, which is what America doesn't want us to do sometimes. Right. <laughs> Um, and so basically they, they cut off his ability to work for like nine years. He wasn't able to, he couldn't even go to Canada, which didn't require a passport, but they wouldn't allow him to go there. And there were people really behind him, like um, Canadian union workers came to the, the uh, Peace Arch 
and he performed there during this time period where he was Honey unable US to travel. Side. I don't know how they how they worked it out, but basically That's they wild. went to the Peace Arch. People gathered there because he was unable to cross the border because the government mm. wouldn't allow it, and he gave her a concert there. He also was very much very supportive of the Welsh miners, and they there was a point where he uh, made a during this time period where he couldn't travel, they set up a, a concert for him to perform via phone because awesome. they wanted to support him and allow him to sing. And I bet that sounded terrible. Uh, actually, it sounded pretty good. Yeah, you, not bad. You can listen to it. Okay. So who's the Paul Robeson of our time? Hmm. I'll think about that. Someone who's incredibly talented but completely damned. Hugh Jackman? <laughs> He's no. a singer and an actor. And... Kesha. <laughs> has he been damp? Has his talent been completely silenced and tried to? Muffle? So you're thinking of an example, not of the quality, but someone of somebody who's been in that circumstance. Someone who is incredibly talented, but who society or whoever powers that be want to like damn him. Are you fishing player. for an answer here? Football player. <laughs> Colin Ka- Kaepernick. Kaepernick. Kesha. Kaepernick. Uh, Kesha. Because the other thing that he did was he stopped singing concerts. Uh, other than he he made a decision to set to I'm only going to sing concerts for causes mm. at a point. So he said I'm not going to be singing for just generally for money from this point on, or at least for the next few years. I'm going to be singing only for causes, which I think is kind of what Colin Kaepernick. Kaepernick I used to say his name well, actually, wrong all the time. I thought he, I thought he said recently that he would go back to he would stop uh, kneeling during the national anthem or whatever if he could play football again. Mm-hmm. So not so much. Surrendering to only fight for causes. If you want to talk about someone who's just stepped out to do causes, um, Chelsea Handler recently did that. She mm. decided to um, not renew her Netflix show and dedicate all her time to um, causes that she feels passionately about. Mm-hmm. So she's doing that now. Of course, a lot of people do that without giving, you know, that's the thing. They've never had a thing to give up because they always devote yeah. themselves to causes. Mm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I think it is hard harder you know Colin Kaepernick aside I would say it's harder for the people to be completely frozen out partly because of social media and other ways to access your fans Mm -hmm. even Kesha although she was totally frozen out of the music industry was able to release songs in Mm -hmm. some ways Um, but there are people doing basically following that same path now I think Kaepernick's the best example because he would love a job but he can't get one because of his you know, outspokenness his, yeah and i think that's i think that's good but it's also so sad and it's bad yeah it's right. terrible it's good and it's bad for different reasons look at sean king's tweets all about this <laughs> are we do we want to talk about what we thought about the movie or do we want to save that till the end let's, let's talk about i mean let's go around the the, the horn and do it james oh um i mean besides the sort of narrative uh, uh confusion um, uh, well, well, something I mentioned while I was watching the movie, it seems so weird watching a movie from that time when you don't have the like mm-hmm. so many decades of uh, hindsight of how people have made movies and just sort of the way movies are made. How, how are we going to tell this story in this sort of very new, uh, untested medium? So it's, uh, it's interesting to see them you know, trying out so many ideas. I feel like maybe the filmmakers bit off more than they could chew, like. I, I believe you mentioned, Jacob, that they originally, when this movie uh, was shown, they would hand out pamphlets to the... That, that the, was my mom. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they, they would hand out pamphlets to the uh, the goers to 
explain basically what was happening in the movie. I feel mm-hmm. on some level artistically you failed if you have to have a little <laughs> like insert to explain what's going on sure. when people are watching the movie. But um, it's it's grappling with a lot of ideas. Um, and the uh, the sort of just imagery of it is is very striking, even uh, mm-hmm. even from a modern perspective. I liked what Nicole said um, during our movie viewing, which is, you know, this is an avant-garde avant-garde film, and we're thinking about like, does this symbolize anything? Does this not symbolize anything? And Nicole said something like, "But does it though?" Like, <laughs> and we were talking about the hands or the cat or something. And Nicole said something like, but does it really symbolize that? And I'm like, you know, we're just taking our best guesses here. I really liked when Nicole said that. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so kind of echoing a little bit of what James said and about the avant-garde. One thing that I was thinking of while we were watching is something that was sort of a touchstone for me, although this seems a little weird. Uh, Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. I see that, <laughs> especially the, the return, I see the avant-garde filmmaking touches here where like a very common uh visual motif in twin peaks the return is they will cut to a sweeping shot of pacific northwest forest Mm -hmm. and i see that as like a more maybe a little more evolved and, and using some of our modern like film making vocabulary but those same sort of things of like using visuals to try and get an emotion across without a direct like not without plot or story necessarily but being like one of the things david lynch does is someone drive it a first person shot of someone driving at night with their headlights on Mm -hmm. as a very creepy discomforting sequence and it's that same sort of visual metaphor is like people wringing their hands that you saw in this. In this movie. And like James had pointed out, uh, there were some similarities similarities to this movie in The Room, one of my favorite movies ever. <laughs> I have to, anytime, anytime I'm on the show, I just have to talk about The Room. The room but go watch it. <laughs> in The Room, you know, there's sweeping shots of San Francisco and <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> I, and I'm picturing that in my head and laughing. In the end, um, but you know, this movie was some. There are some parallels to the room. Oh, there's, for sure. There's a there's an affair. There's friends betrayal. There's sweeping shots of the countryside. I think some of that comes from you know it's a writer director like putting his heart out on the screen, and the room is the same thing. Maybe done less effectively, <laughs> with a little less uh, artistic skill, but excuse me, <laughs> but absolutely. Is it my turn? It's your turn. <laughs> well, I think I'm thinking about this movie in the context of other movies we've watched that were from around the same time. Mm-hmm. So we watched Power of the Press from 1928, made by Frank Capra. We watched uh, Frankenstein from 1934. Yeah, this movie was somehow way advanced from any of those. It, it didn't it didn't use any of the movie tropes that we're familiar with even now really in general. Mm-hmm. Um, the the shots were weird. <laughs> the the sure. story was told in images that were not always uh, you know, it wasn't just like I'm watching a guy follow a try to try to solve a murder or something. It was like I'm supposed to get. Some, it's a think piece. It's mm-hmm. a thinker. You it could rep- you could take a class and 
talk about you know what any of these images mean or what they're trying to tell us or I think you need historical context really to understand this movie. This reminds me of Karen and I went to the Seattle Art Museum when they were doing an Andy Warhol exhibit and mm. they were showing video stuff he did mm. and it reminds me of something that would play silently on a screen at the art museum. Yeah, I thought that too. I was thinking that I could totally see going into a into a museum of the Seattle Art Museum and seeing this playing on the wall somewhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. especially the cat scene with the um, the cat scene trying to catch the fish, and then the hands scene. Just like a montage of all the hand close-ups in this film. I thought that the hands, you know, symbolized like our choices that we make and our autonomy. And I'm everyone in this room has heard me say this several times already, but I'm gonna say it to all of you guys. Wrong. Whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that it, that this movie is um, this movie. The hands in this movie represent that. I don't know. Just to cool. clarify, Karen is describing a scene where. Pete is looking for Ada on the street, and it's spliced with a cat trying to catch a fish out of a jar, jar. that's been left on the street. I thought it was mm-hmm. interesting that he catches the fish out of the jar, which has a you know circular opening, and then Pete catches Ada in a in an alley in an alleyway that also has like an arched opening yeah. to it. And I don't know what that's supposed to make us think. Like Ada was always his. Like that fish was always that cat. He's gonna eat her. Fish in a barrel, I don't know. Ada's got scales, who knows. And there's that weird, the, 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 the hand motif is completed at the end of the movie. That sort of last scene, right before the, the end scene with the managers and the barmaid, you have uh, Pete and Thorne mm. uh, meeting, and you have the like classic shot of the, the white hand clasping the black hand. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like, I, mean, I don't know what the emotional payoff is supposed to be there, because like, there's been like, murder and all and Pete's being run yeah. out of town there's all this unpleasantness like they're not really like making point. up it's not uh, it I wasn't quite sure what to make of that yeah I, I agree with James I was like why is that guy shaking that guy's hand I wouldn't want to be friends with that guy Ugh. but Pete did seem to be somehow angelic like the perfect he was always optimistic he was fine with Ada when she came back to him let's let's loop back on that I want to hear Nicole's thoughts on this <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that this film resonated with me. I don't know if it was stylistically or I'm still struggling with what exactly the movie was supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was supposed to be about uh, interracial relationships or just interracial communities, um, I think it sort of failed. <laughs> Having that be the centerpiece of the story, mm-hmm. um, it yeah. seemed more of like a peripheral issue. If um, they were just so advanced relatively speaking to other countries and other societies that it was just a movie about an affair and the interracial you know nature of it was sort of just a shrug and an afterthought that's actually kind of cool that it was sort of just put in there like oh this you know could have been any you know sort of relationship and it was just the affair that was the focus of the rage i don't know so i'm still struggling with maybe it was advanced and that's cool or (laughs) it really was lacking in whatever it was trying to say and yeah. not so cool well, well i think the, the plot is definitely intentionally uh, racially charged when the affair is first discovered um I, I forget one of the characters calls thorn a n-word lover um yeah one of the well, townspeople his, his girlfriend or his wife mm. says that to him right 
Yeah. Maybe, yeah, I'm not sure. It's That Some scene is a little hard to yeah, I think she'd be parts. upset regardless of who he was. But on the other hand, to play like devil's advocate from like try to put myself in the perspective of a, someone in the 30s seeing this, if their perspective was that like the races like shouldn't mix and should stay separate, doesn't the story kind of validate them? It was like... It was the affair and that sort of mixing that led to the murder and all the unpleasantness. Yeah. Like, if you stayed separate, none of that would have happened, right? That's what yeah. I was saying. But that's why I don't know. Watching, if it... the view, watching the movie, it was like the affair, the evilness of the affair was like intricately tied to them being an interracial affair. That's yeah. weird. I didn't, I didn't, I mean, definitely I picked up on the racism, mm-hmm. but in terms of the anger of the characters, like Astrid seemed unstable to begin with, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. did Thorn, and it really felt like he could have been cheating with anyone, and they still would have been violent, angry people who came to a head at the end. But the townspeople wouldn't have been as angry, I think, if Thorn was seeing a Sure, white sure. Person. But that's mm-hmm. why it felt more like it was on the periphery, like a secondary issue versus mm-hmm. the cause of the strife like it was in the next movie we talked about. Mm-hmm. So from <clears throat> from what I read about this movie, which is one of those movies that people do actually study quite a bit. This was a Criterion Collection DVD you had, which means there was some significance that somebody picked up on. Well, the movie that the the disc set that I have actually is a set of Paul Robeson movies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's like four disc set of various movies that he made that are considered significant. Mm -hmm. Um, This movie, part of, I think, part of what they described was that you're supposed to get the, you're supposed to be, I don't know if enraged is the right word, but Pete's unfair treatment is supposed to, is sort of like the thing that is supposed to make you think. Like, he didn't do anything. He was completely innocent in the whole thing, but he was run out of town anyway. And that is supposed to be, that's not supposed to be an okay resolution. That's supposed to be a resolution that makes you unhappy or sure. to see okay. the injustice of it. I yeah. got that then. Yeah. Okay. Successful. Yes. I wanted to, this is a idea that I maybe only half agree with, but sort of playing devil's advocate. And I think this will tie into loving. Um, maybe because this movie is written and directed by whatever the guy who played Thorn is. Who's no, a, I, I got that wrong. Who is a... Oh. It, it's directed by... I think his first name's Kenneth McPherson. And he, McPherson, he wrote it. For sure. I know he wrote it. He did it write it. it. He was not Thorne. Thorne was played by, the, like I said, the great-grandson of the 21st president. And I assume <laughs> McPherson is a white person. Because one of the things I was going to point out that I don't 100% agree with, but I wanted to th- kind of throw to the table, is Pete is fetishized in this movie. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. one of the ways that the movie makes him very innocent is he is very chill about everything that happens to him which is not realistic and one of the ways i think the the director tries to get across that this is so unfair to him is by having him basically have no negative feelings towards anyone and like james said shake hands with the person who murdered who basically led to him getting run out of town through a murder he was acquitted for um because he's so chill about everything and so angelic, which is a little, which is very reductive to a real person. Now, I will say, all the characters are very reductive. They don't have a lot of depth. Yeah, but Let me, in, uh, I want to correct something that you said. He wasn't acquitted of the murder. Thorn was. Uh, no, that's what I mean. I'm even, sorry. He was never even accused of a murder, yeah. and yet he's the person who was punished. Right. I was going to say, yeah. Pete shakes is willing to shake hands and is totally like, eh, okay, with Thorn, who was acquitted of a murder. Even though, as the viewers, we're all like, 
that guy sucks and has sucked throughout this whole movie and is a bad man. What I, mean, I want to say, lover, can like. I? I'm gonna raise my finger here. What I want to say is that this, the depiction of Pete in this movie, Pete as the peaceful, happy-go-lucky black man, is what I think the old view ideas of you know people who hold old view ideas want to see in like a this is their like ideal black person the the ideal black person who is you know happy-go-lucky easy to forgive people who've done like egregious wrongs Um, this is someone who is even fine with the fact that his wife or girlfriend has cheated on him with a with a white man you know like this is what I it's surprising that that Pete in his real life as Paul Robeson is so outspoken against the injustices that the African-American community faces because in this movie he's he's portrayed as like this passive happy-go-lucky ideal version of a black person when Mm -hmm. in reality you know you should have angry feelings when you're facing injustice you should have an emotional response that is not just like you know ah you know whatever dust off my shoulders what whatever that phrase is let me interject a little bit on that point and that is this is one of he was relatively young when he made this movie, and there, so there is an evolution mm. of thought there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, he made a lot of movies that that other African Americans, especially today, would say he shouldn't have been doing that. Mm-hmm. This is not a depicting. And he tried very hard to per, to do roles that did not play into that to those stereotypes. And from time to time, I, I can't remember what the name of the movie is. This one specific movie where. He was playing an African uh, king, and he was—he thought this was going to be a great depiction. And then the way that they actually made the movie, yeah. edited, kind of, yeah, yeah. went and, against that. And um, I just also want to clarify that you know neither none of us in this room are are black people, so we we can't really speak to the viewpoints yeah. of of black people in general. Uh, but you know that's. I just wanted to clarify that. And mm-hmm. I guess at that time, you know, the, those types of roles were so scarce and those types of, you know, successful black actors might have been scarce as well. I, I also don't know the history of um, black actors in cinema. So whoever of our viewers knows, you should tweet and or Instagram or whatever at us and let us know. Yeah. Inform I, us. I mean, I, I said I was going to somewhat play devil's advocate on this because the white characters are also somewhat flat and Ada is a black character who has more depth and more agency than Pete does but that did strike me as Pete's character is so forgiving Mm -hmm. and so nice that it seems unrealistic and I will come up when we talk about loving here in a minute I Mm -hmm. think about that sort of softening of the edges of these non-white characters I know both James and Nicole had things they wanted to say. Oh, oh, maybe not. Maybe we covered it. Covered it. Do you want to talk about loving? Yep. Let's move on. All right. Who would like to synopsize? I can try, but I my efforts at synopsizing are always so terrible because I just go <laughs> off the rails wow. almost immediately. Well, like you should right make one now. of the co-hosts synopsize because we're the like full time. Oh, that's people. true. I choose Nicole. Oh boy. Oh gosh. Yeah, let's hear it. It's <laughs> cool. Cool. Let's hear everything it. that happens. Oh gosh. Okay. So oh, it'd be helpful if I knew the characters' names, their first names. Uh, Richard Loving and Mildred Jeter. Okay. AKA String Bean. String Bean. <laughs> yeah. And Ruth Nega is how I know her because I love yeah, her. Yeah, right. I love Ruth She's Nega. the best. Her preacher. So cool. AKA Tulip, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's cool. right. So, um, 
there's an interracial couple, and the um, Richard is the name of the guy, and he is uh, he works construction. What year does this take place? And I, I don't Early remember. 60s, right? No, no. Uh, they get married 19... in fifty eight. I think is when it starts. They get arrested in nineteen fifty eight. Okay. Okay. The the trial uh, ends in nineteen sixty seven. So yeah, yeah, that was the one I, thing the law folk here knew was Richard is a bricklayer. Yes, and then um, oh, we know. It, be- <laughs> it begins with him at work, and then he takes her to a field near where she grew up and proposes to her and tells her that he's going to build them a home to start a life. Richard is white. Richard is white. And they take her father to drive to D.C. to get married. Um, They say it's just going to be less red tape to do it there. Um, So they get married and I assume a civil ceremony. And when they drive back, they live uh, with her family. Um, And one night... Oh, she's pregnant. (laughs) She's pregnant that too. She's pregnant. The movie opens. (laughs) And they... um, The police break into the house in the dead of night and arrest the two of them and throw them in jail. He is, uh, Richard, is released on bail to one of his friends who is also black and asks about what's going to happen to Mildred and they say she has to stay here over the weekend. You can't bail her out. She'll see the judge on Monday. Uh, He comes back the next day, wants to bail her out. They still won't let him. The officer who arrested them uh, threatens to jail him again if he tries to bail her out. When he mentions that she's pregnant and he doesn't want to leave her there, he's threatened um, again with mm-hmm. arrest just for that issue. Right. Um, and threatens to, he wants to go get a lawyer and get them out. Um, and the officer says, We won't release her to you. One of her kind should come and get her. Yeah. I mean, the, the officer or the captain or whatever is. Outwardly Overtly racist. racist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a stereotype of a southern racist sheriff, you could yeah. probably... I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of that sort of in the background. You see, you know, when they're first introduced as a couple and they're at a drag race, um, you know, the, the white side of the <laughs> audience uh, looks at them canoodling and looks mm-hmm. sick. There yeah. was one scene where the um, there's the record shop, that, or whatever shop they were in where they were looking at either records or sewing patterns, yeah, sewing but patterns. the um, African-American lady who owns that shop didn't really like that look either. Yeah, of, people are very uncomfortable with them being in this relationship, mm-hmm. most yeah. likely because it's illegal, mm-hmm. and the, also just uncomfortable. And the, and the black characters, including our family, are uncomfortable, but more accepting, generally. They're fine with the relationship. I think they're irritated about them getting married and sort of pushing the legal boundary about it. Is it fair to say that the um, black characters in this movie and maybe in society in general had more to lose and more at stake than the white characters who married into this? Well, their relationship It's it's implied that it might have been one of the the black neighbors who turned them in in the Mm -hmm. first place, so there's definitely an element of discord about it even within the black community even though they had so much to learn. Well and Richard doesn't seem to be super aware of how much he's pushing the issue Mm -hmm. Um, it's mentioned that by the racist officer (laughs) that he grew up um, in a household where his father was employed by a black man Mm -hmm. and so the officer sort of like you don't know any better because you grew up like this you didn't know that this was improper and so Mm -hmm. I feel bad for you. But then there are accusations of by um, Stringbean's sister of 
you knew what you were doing. You knew what you like. You knew what your actions meant. You knew that this would cause so much strife and hurt in this family if you did this. Well, and also, he Richard is punished much less when they are arrested. Yeah, he is let out immediately on bail, and Mildred has to spend the weekend. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why, like, just putting myself in 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 um, String Bean's shoes and in her community's shoes, like. I would be so upset if if I saw that one of the people in my community um, was just she had so much to lose from this situation where to the white guy it was just oh he's just marrying the person that he loves but to the black woman she is completely estranged and I know he's estranged from his mother but but she's completely estranged from her loving warm family of like eight million I don't know Mm -hmm. there's like eight people that live in that house and and she has so much to lose from her relationship to him being so out in the open. And I don't know if that's a weird way of putting it, like so much to lose, so much to gain, but and comparing it that way. But, you know, it, this, I, I mean, I think the movie displays it that way because he has one member of his family who is not nice to him. And she is shown to have a large, loving family who supports both of them throughout mm-hmm. the movie. I mean, the movie, I think, makes that explicit. So they get an attorney, and he says that because he knows the judge, he can get them a plea deal. Um, They have to plead guilty, and they will get a suspended sentence, um, which means instead of going to jail for anywhere from one to five years, they have to leave the state of Virginia, and they ask for how long that suspension um, will last, and they're told 25 years. So basically (laughs) most of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and they decide to do it. So they go to D.C. to live with um, a family friend of Mildred's, and they stay there, and um, while they're there, Mil- uh, Richard is still commuting back to Virginia for his job, so he's gone most of the day, mm-hmm. um, and then he comes back one night, and Mildred's sad because uh, Richard's mother is a midwife, And Mildred says that she always thought that his mother would be the one to deliver their child. So they decide to risk it and sneak back to Virginia to have the baby. And it's sort of an elaborate scheme of driving halfway there, and then Mildred is hiding in the backseat under a blanket. I was so confused. Yeah, (laughs) and then she's picked up by one of Richard's friends, who's black, and driven there. And then Richard comes in later, hides the car in the barn, and they're there for a while. Yeah. And then Mildred is having the baby, and the next morning, I think it was, it was pretty quickly after she had the baby, the police show up. So, again, we don't know how they found out, but someone Mm -hmm. told on them. So, at first, Richard doesn't want to admit that she's there. The cop is threatening to arrest the whole family if Mildred doesn't come out, so she... Um, hands the baby to her sister and turns herself in as well and they're taken back to jail they go to court to be sentenced for violating the plea agreement that they had made earlier the previous lawyer they had comes running in at the last moment and tells the judge that it's his fault that he told Mm -hmm. them erroneously that they could come back for the birth of their child and it would be fine so the judge is a little miffed about we, not being able to sentence them again. We heard earlier that the judge does not like the interracial mixing at all. Yes, he's yeah. very opposed to this concept. 
Um, and so he sort of says, okay, just pay the fine. So they pay the fine, they go to thank the attorney, and he sort of brushes them off and says, don't do this again. Mm -hmm. This will not be okay again. Right. So they go back to D.C. and are living their life, and they have um, another child and then a third child. And throughout this time, they're sort of integrating into the community, and Richard has now got a construction job in D.C., I think. (laughs) I think he's no longer commuting. The brick changes color. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And um, one day her children are out playing in the street. And she's always sort of been a little sad that they don't have a yard to run in Mm because that's how she grew up in Virginia. And as they're playing ball, one of uh, the boys goes chasing after the ball into the street and gets hit by a car. Mm -hmm. And when Richard gets home, all their bags are packed. And Mildred says... I don't want to raise our children here. There's a scene before this. They they meet the ACLU attorney before this happens because this is the no. This no, is way after. not. I thought this was her going along with his no, plan. She writes a letter to Robert Kennedy before that. Ah, okay. She might have written the letter before that. Before oh, they, de- the they definitely they definitely meet the lawyer while they're still in Washington because they yes, he because calls they them yes, and he's right. like, "I have an office up in Washington if that works better." For yeah. So I think it's I think it's after their daughter is born. Right, that they she writes the letter. I think it was a it, little early. The thing that the thing that prompted her to say this is, I'm, oh yeah, you're right. They the watched the kid, march. They watched she, the march on she, TV. She definitely did meet with the lawyer one time before <clears throat> the kid got hit by a car. In the yeah. Project. So at some point when they're living in DC early on, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, right. I think it was the family friend recommended that. Yeah, they, write to Bobby they write to Bobby Kennedy, who's I, attorney general at the time. I think she's there living with her aunt. Her aunt, okay. That mm-hmm. is. is that her aunt, that lady? I believe that lady Yeah, is I think aunt. that's right. Yes. Oh. Yeah, I just... I family, family. Some family. sort of family. They didn't say anything about it in the movie. They just said, we're we'll in with you. And she's like, that's fine. You've got plenty of room. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think it was an aunt. So she writes a letter to Bobby Kennedy, who's attorney general at the time, and tells him about their predicament, about the, you know what their charges were, how they can't go back to Virginia, and asks for his help. Um, she gets a phone call from an attorney named uh, Bernard S. Cohen. Played by Nick Kroll. Yeah. So, such awesome. a joy. Such a joy to see Nick Kroll show yeah. up in this movie. Throwback to his lawyer roots. That's right. Oh, so uh, you might know him as Ruxin from The League. Yeah. Uh, so he calls and says, um, the Bobby Kennedy couldn't help you and referred your case to the ACLU and they contacted me. Um, I'm from Virginia, but I have an office in D.C. Or in, did he say in D.C.? Yes. 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 Well, um, not his office. He's, 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 he's I can meet you at an office else, in D.C. Yeah. I love how they portrayed lawyers in this movie. It's, oh, it's so, great. it's close to accurate. It's great. Yeah, Self-serving, <laughs> greedy, I mean, fake it till you make it, just <laughs> all the time, Karen Hernandez, the end. So That's he boring. says, I, I think we can help you. So they agree to go meet him. Uh, before they meet him, you see him arrive at the office and sort of, you realize it's not his office. <laughs> He's borrowing it. And yeah. he, he clears away the name placard and replaces it with his, takes down all the personal photos um, that could be identifying, and then <laughs> bring, puts out his legal pad in front of him and fixes his hair, and then they get ushered in. And he tells them that he thinks this could be a huge case that could go to the Supreme Court. And <laughs> he, he pitches that plan, which I love. <laughs> and, you know, Richard is not interested in this. Mm-hmm. Richard wants to know, what, what can you do for us? We just want to go home. Mm-hmm. What relief can you get us? I think he says, can't you just talk to the judge? Yeah. yeah. And he yeah. says, just, just explain to him. Um, and Cohen is sort of 
uh, trying to think of the best way to phrase to him that that's just not an option. And he sort of tries to tell him legally, like, well, if you were going to appeal, we needed to do it within 60 days of the sentence, and that is well since passed. Um, I think he said it had been five years at that point. You've had three kids since then. Yeah. (laughs) We have got to talk about his suggestion for how they move this forward. So he says, we need to get you back in court so we can challenge the law. Mm -hmm. Um, You should go back and get arrested. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And they're sort of like just dead silent and looking at him like that that's not going to work for us one of them is more like that (laughs) richard loving is and then his wife is more like maybe well she says she says that's not going to work for us like Mm -hmm. we don't want to do that i think we did we skip over the fact that when they were arrested the first time not only was she kept in jail for at least three days yeah uh at some point the sheriff comes by with with a inmate Mm -hmm. with a Somebody he's... A male it, inmate. A male inmate, and he says... And this happened for real, by the way. This was not... This was based on reality. He's, he says, well, maybe I should put you in with her. Yeah. yeah. So he was a black male inmate. Mm-hmm. her for the three days that she was there while right. pregnant. Yeah, they so do not terrifying. want her to go back to jail. No, so she, doesn't she did not have a great jail. experience. Yeah. Um, so he says, I apologize. That was probably not a great pitch. Um, I need to do some more research and figure out how to get this case back. In front of a judge, so time they, passes. yeah, time passes. They don't hear from him, and they, they go. go then you know, after the accident, they decide to go back anyway. And she writes a letter to the attorney and says, "You know, we haven't heard from you, so we've kind of given up hope. But just so you know, we're going back." Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if this is sort of a like, "Can you still help us?" or "Be prepared," or why she's writing that letter. But it got to him, and he realizes, "I have not done anything on this." calls a old professor of his at Georgetown Law. Is that where it was? Yeah, yeah that's right. Georgetown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sets up a meeting with him. Uh, conveniently, the professor had been meeting earlier with a prominent civil rights attorney. Mm-hmm. So asked him to stick around for the subsequent meeting. And they go over the case. And this civil rights attorney agrees to jump on with them. So right. at this point... I'm not entirely sure what they file or how they continue to get involved. I mean, ultimately, they do get arrested again. They do get arrested. I was it. Well, they move into Some... a house that is owned by a friend of Loving. a friend of yeah. <laughs> Richards. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not entirely sure how they're caught again. For and the they, third and time. The, they see you see that Richard and Mildred. Richard especially, is very nervous about getting arrested again. When his friend comes driving in really fast, it's mm-hmm. a scene where he's like, okay, everybody go inside the house. Did the they get arrested at that house? I don't think they, no, they didn't get arrested mm-hmm. again, did they? I, I, my recollection of what happened is that the, the, the lawyers filed some sort of appeal in court against the original judgment. And even though the judges could have said, well, this is past the, the date for uh, whenever right. you could have whenever you could have uh, filed this appeal, they instead launched into this all this Archie Bunker nonsense about like God putting the different races on different continents, and that's uh, why they need these laws. And right. the lawyers discussed that that is their in to file another appeal. Yeah, yeah. They okay. Were, they were that's reviewing good, James, that yeah. judge's ruling, and then they're like, "This is the perfect roadmap for us." James yeah. is right. Right. Okay. So they they can't. They weren't arrested. Um, Instead, they keep going to... They've been um, followed by the press quite a bit at this point. And um, I, does he work for Life, Life magazine? magazine, I think. Um, uh, 
what's the actor's name? Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon. The most subdued Michael Shannon role you will ever see. I just don't recognize him when he's not just like slobbering about how much he hates Superman. <laughs> yeah. So he plays a photographer who is following them around um, to sort of document their experience um, and share it with the country. And, you know, they they lose a, the Supreme Court case, the local Supreme Court, the state mm-hmm. Supreme Court case, mm-hmm. and are interviewed and sort of give the message to the press like, oh, I guess, you know, we're still hopeful, but we'll go back to D.C., even though they're not planning on going back to D.C. And the attorneys tell them, if for some reason you get arrested again, get in contact with us, we don't want you to spend any longer in jail than it takes for us to get there. And then, and then we find out that they don't actually, they're not actually sure if they can actually get these people out of jail if they ever were to go into jail. So shady. <laughs> Lawyers, man. Well, Lawyers. I think they were definitely putting on an act for the press because yes. the press was filming this at the time. Also, um, I, I want to point out, at this point in the movie, Loving has basically checked out. He is not... He is not interested in the sort of national level of this court case. He just wants to live his life. He's hesitant about the attention. He yeah. kind of acquiesces. Mildred is. They both are, really. I mean, Mildred sees... A little bit more into it. Yeah, she is, she is willing to kind of put a face on a little bit. Both her. characters are, like, so muted and so, like, almost emotionless in this movie. But Mildred is, I think, just a touch more into the whole like this could be helpful for not just us but for a whole nation of people sort of thing yeah that yeah i think be... she feels involved in something larger than herself mm-hmm. um there's a scene where she's watching the protests uh that martin luther king is doing mm-hmm. and sort of remarks to herself might as well be a whole nother country like it's mm-hmm. so right. far removed from her yeah half a world away um it's so far removed from something that's affecting her directly so I think she's happy to finally sort of be involved in mm-hmm. something larger. Um, yeah, he just sort of wants everybody to leave them alone. He's not interested in being, you know, uh, a martyr for a cause. Or... And I, I think that, uh, I don't know if we're, I'm jumping the gun here with analysis, but I think that, like, you know, that that's white privilege coming into play. Like, we only want it to work out for us, but, like, she and the rest of the black community are, like, you know, <laughs> we want it to work out for, like, Anyone who wants this to happen for themselves. I think she definitely wants that. I don't know if I would say the whole community agreed with her. I think, that's true. That's true. That's yeah. fair. And her family, you know, even her sister was sort of like, why did you make this a bigger deal mm-hmm. than it had to be? Um, so at this point, she uh, she's sort of an activist, but a reluctant one. And he is still going about his daily life. There's a scene where he is at work and when he's leaving for the day in the back of his car is a brick wrapped with the life magazine article about what's going on with them mm-hmm. um and he sort of looks around to figure out who put it there and he, he's upset he's upset that this is sort of a taunting threatening action about what's going on in his life he just wants it done um they get a call no sorry excuse me the lawyer comes to visit them where they're staying and tells them that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear their case. And would they like to come listen to the arguments? And Richard has no interest in this. And they sort of tell him, this is a big honor. People do not get to mm-hmm. hear Supreme Court cases. One the Supreme Court exactly only mm-hmm. takes one in 400 cases. Um, she clearly wants to go, but says she wouldn't go without her husband. Uh, so... 
the movie is really divested from the legal <laughs> yeah, sort of surprisingly. world. Yeah, I really thought it was going to be a whole movie about court, and it was not. Um, so they go and the there's a scene where they do the opening arguments. I think they juxtaposed it with some of the original um, recordings is what it sounded like. Mm, so they have, uh, I forget what the name of the attorney who's helping him is, the civil rights attorney. I not Cohen, but... Um, something else. Bernard S. Cohen and Philip J. Hirschkop. Hirschkop. So Hirschkop goes first and presents... Oh, I should rewind. Before he goes to the Supreme Court, he tells them uh, they think they have a good argument for their case. Um, and Richard says, well, what are they going to defend on? What's Virginia's position? And again, the attorneys look very uncomfortable and they sort of say, oh, they're, they're same defense that they've been using. Right. Mm-hmm. And Richard's like, what is that defense? And they're told it's your children. They think that it is unfair to bring in multiracial children to this world that they are basically bastards. I believe it was the same defense they used in the board versus uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm. Mm. Was that it was not good for children to mix them together. Mm. Right. So that's troubling. And Very. Before he leaves, Cohen asks uh, Richard, is there something you'd like me to tell the judges? And he says, yeah, tell them that I love my wife. So uh, Herskowitz, what did we decide? Hershkop. Hershkop. <laughs> um, goes and makes his opening, and it's, it's in a you know a truncated version of it. And then uh, Cohen makes his opening and sort of asks, what what compelling interest does Virginia have in stopping these two from being married? Mm-hmm. What does it hurt Virginia for these two people to be together? Um, and then it just doesn't go into any of the other legal arguments. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and then they flash to uh, Mildred, sort of still living her life, raising her kids. They're running around screaming. And she gets a phone call <laughs> and answers the phone, and it's Cohen. And you can sort of hear him going in and out on the other end. You don't really hear what he's saying to her. Mm-hmm. And But you hear the cheers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Something good's happening. She is sort of minimally reactive, but you can tell she's happy. And you can tell that he asked, you know, are you still there? Because she says, yes, I'm still here. And uh, If you're watching with <laughs> subtitles, you do get to hear the other end of the uh-huh. conversation. Uh-huh. I can hear some of it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where he said it's good news and things like that. And he tells her they won. And it's very sort of understated um, mm-hmm. that it just sort of happens. And I think that's basically because the whole movie is that way. Yeah. It's, yeah. It was just sort of something that they stumbled into. They weren't looking to be activists. So it's nice, and then she goes out, and uh, Richard is playing in the field with her children, and she is standing near him, and they do the title card ending (laughs) about Mm. the court case. And then we find out that seven years later, he was killed by a drunk driver. That he's building their house (laughs) (laughs) during the credits Um, or under the credits. Right. They've gone back to that original plot of land that he had bought for them, and he's Mm -hmm. building their house. And so, yeah, he's killed by a drunk driver. Um, they tell us that she never remarries. She uh, stayed in that house. She but... stayed in that house. Cool. Uh, she's um, reluctantly interviewed in 2008. And uh, she says that Richard was the love of her life and he always took care of her. It's really sweet. It's, it was sweet. sweet. It's yeah. a nice moment. And then the, the end. ends. 
This court case was used um, in the overturning of Title VIII, mm-hmm. um, and she did give a statement. They asked her to give a statement, and she did give a statement saying, I believe that all people should be able to marry whoever they wish to marry. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the last, probably one of the last activist sort of things that she did mm. was to support. Was that 2016? The movie was oh, no, made the, in when gay marriage uh, was legalized. Was that was, no, that was 2015? No, much no, like no, no, no. Recently, when the Obergefell v. Hedges. Yeah. No, that was maybe in my times. I think your time. <laughs> my so, timeline is so all messed up. So our homosexual friends probably got married while we were in law school. But yeah, that happened when, in Washington earlier. Remember when the um, rainbows were painted in Capitol Hill on the side on the street intersection? Yeah, it was 2014. I think it was 2014. 2014. Okay, my timeline is completely yeah. screwed yeah. <laughs> But that was a pretty cool moment. And that's, yeah. this case was used as a as support for that. Yeah, yes. yeah. I, for anyone who's not a law nerd, uh, the, one of the important parts of the Supreme Court decision in Loving v. Virginia was that uh, marriage is an inherent right mm-hmm. for people. So that was right. the foundation later for other cases. And that's the movie Loving, 2016, <laughs> starring that guy and Ruth Nega. <laughs> Joel, Joel Edgerton. Joel Edgerton. Who is in one of my favorite movies. What's your favorite movie that he's in? Kinky Boots. Oh, oh that's a I great didn't know movie. That. Kinky Boots. He's the guy who owns the shoe factory, who inherits the shoe factory. I don't think I've actually ever seen it. I still have to watch it. Because Let's borrow it. I want to. Deb told me all about Kinky Boots in D.C. Yeah. <laughs> After I got... Was I drunk? Because I don't remember. You weren't drunk, but I was hungover. Are you sure? My mom gets drunk occasionally. You weren't overtly drunk, (laughs) but I was overtly hungover. (laughs) So what did you guys think of this movie? I loved it. Nicole. I loved it. I thought it was um, really well done. I was disappointed because I wanted more of the court stuff, but that's just, again, because we're law nerds. Um, But just in terms of the storytelling and how personal it felt and how well acted it was... Um, I just I thought it was a really great way to present uh, the the people behind these larger societal issues, how it personally affects individuals, um, also how long it takes. You know that these are things that we sort of take for granted now because they've been precedent for a while. Mm-hmm. But that I mean, it took ten years for this mm-hmm. to sort of resolve mm-hmm. for them, and it started out with such a minor minor mm-hmm. incident, um, and it became world-changing so i don't know i just thought it was a really well done film there were some things i liked some scenes i really loved like her the revealing of her pregnancy scene i thought that was so powerful the first scene yeah the first scene (laughs) um but i just like i said earlier i and i think that deb would agree with me she had said earlier too that the focus was so much on the white male perspective on this and there was just so many scenes of him laying bricks and him laying concrete blocks and it's just mm-hmm. like what about what she saw what about what about the things that she saw in the home that she moved into what about her family members who weren't really named or given any autonomy or weren't given many lines i just thought like this is a movie about the racial tensions in um interracial relationship and um i just wish i could have seen more from the the non-white characters in this movie That's one weird. of the reasons I that i that i felt that it was wrong to focus on him is that I watched a documentary about them which has actual film hmm. a lot of the stuff in what this movie what was the name of that documentary was it named Loving don't ask me because okay. <laughs> there is a documentary that this movie is based on that they took from yeah maybe we can put it in the blog post 
later on. I don't yeah. know. We can do that. We, by, by we, I mean Deb, because yeah. she's the one who writes it all. <laughs> um, but, but basically, if you watch the video, if you watch the, it's not video, it's film, if you watch the black and white film of these two people, and there's a lot of it because they were being followed around mm-hmm. during the trial, she's the driving force. Mm-hmm. She's, he rarely spoke, and part of it was, there, you know, theoretically, maybe because his teeth were not very good, so he didn't want to open his mouth or smile or whatever, and you saw that in the movie, mm-hmm. he had bad teeth. And he did in real life. She had beautiful teeth. <laughs> um, but also, and she was very soft-spoken, but she was the spokesperson for them. And I didn't get that from this movie at no, all. I think from... because it was... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go. Because it was made in 2016, and the racial tensions were just so high. I mean, they're always high in this country. Always. Never the, are they not high in this country. Yeah. Um, but... Because it was 2016, and I think uh, I don't know when it was out, but like 15, probably when it was filmed. You know, there's just I think that there's just this. Maybe it's imagined or not, but I think that like people just want people want to talk about race in a palatable way when there is just actually no way to to talk about it in a palatable way. I feel like them making the movie from the perspective of the white male made it maybe they thought like oh this maybe white males might want to see this movie if it's kind of like from his perspective but like honestly i don't think we need to like i don't think we need to do that like i'm frustrated whenever i see a really good opportunity to showcase the complexities of the racial issues in this country and then we kind of just see this like watered down or kind of like well, you know, white male perspective is just what Hollywood wants. So it's just, it's so frustrating. Like, I wanted to see more of Ruth Nega's character and more of Ruth Nega's family. And it just wasn't there. Um, I did like so many of the scenes in this movie. Some of the scenes were very powerful, but oh, I just, I'm frustrated anytime I see like a missed opportunity like this. Well, I mean, I, I, at first, I think you overstate the, the, extent to which it's it's focused on um the richard uh, loving character i mean i think there are a lot of scenes with uh with mildred you know, at, at home with the kids they she's, she's the one who initiates the conversation with the attorneys i mean i i, I don't feel like the the movie uh, elides her her tr- role as the driving force behind behind the case at all but um also i think the richard loving character is interesting and uh Joel Edgerton brings a lot to this performance i think because He's a man who uh, sees and perceives a lot, but it but ends up like saying very little. Um, and it's it's sort of I, I, I this is sourced to Wikipedia, you know, but apparently there were conversations between Joel Edgerton and the director about whether Richard Loving was the extent to which he was just taciturn or actually kind of slow, mm-hmm. and 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 the way that sort of developed into his performance. Um, so I think. I think it is interesting to show this character who um, doesn't really understand the gravity of this of this situation. Um, to just the kind of everyman perspective, uh, and that these sort of events that that intimately involve him that go go far beyond his but um, his personal sphere. But at the end of the day, all he really cares about is is taking care of his family. I think that's a that's a very uh, universally human uh, attribute without necessarily 
you know, having to be about like we're we're giving this this white man's perspective. I think he's just. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I I didn't actually feel it was that imbalanced. I thought there was a ton of scenes about her daily life, you know, um, and how I I don't know. I thought it was a good juxtaposition of her sort of being the instigator for a lot of the progress and him sort of just trying to get through his daily life. Um, I'm not sure how else you would show more of her family. They just didn't seem to have a connection with them. They couldn't really see them. I mean, you have her sister come and talk to her and tell her about the births that are happening in the area. And Mm -hmm. she's just sort of surprised that anybody's even pregnant. She, you know, she's so far removed from what's happening. So I don't know how you would put that in that, that, that might be something that we've, been conditioned to see in stories that like you get all this background information but there that just might not have been part of their lives that might not be part of their story to tell yeah that's what jacob was saying too because i had a lot to say about this last night and he was saying like maybe that's just not true to the story maybe that just didn't really happen but i can't imagine a world where like her family members would not be freaking out when the police enter their home unlawfully you know i can't imagine a world where you know i don't think they could i mean one thing that was striking to me was how interesting it was that this was a white man with a black woman because if it had been the other way around i don't think they would have survived that first arrest Mm -hmm. i i think that's a huge part of the story Mm -hmm. so i think when they come into her black family's home they can't stand up to the police and say you can't arrest them, you know? Yeah. I mean, in terms of their civil rights being violated, that's just the whole movie. <laughs> that's just sort of, yeah. it is what it is. Um, we're used to sort of the idea that they should resist a little more. Um, but even today, that's not entirely safe yeah, for people not, of color to do. What, what, that's what, true. What's interesting to me is, is how sort of impersonal the injustice in the movie is. I mean, as far as, like, actually racist characters, we get that sheriff's deputy, and the, the, the judge, obviously, but mm-hmm. even he doesn't really present it in court. He just sort of, it's sort of off screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then even later, when they're actually getting pushed back in their own community, um, Richard finds the, the brick in his car, and he's followed home and stuff. You don't, you don't see anybody who's, who's chasing yeah. them. There's no face on it, you know? It's this sort of, it's just out there, you know? And that's why I liked it better. It wasn't sort of this cartoon villainy of overt prejudice which I think people that's all they think about when they think about racism and they think I'm not that way I don't Mm -hmm. act like this judge I don't act like that officer when the actual villain was systemic was how Mm -hmm. accepted this was Mm -hmm. this is just the way it is and that's why I thought it was more powerful to have it be sort of everybody's just resigned to this this is the power balance that there is Mm -hmm. I think so I think I lean towards Karen's feelings about the representation of Mildred generally. And I, I want to say, I, in my view, the film kind of flips at about the halfway point. So you yeah. see very little of Mildred up till the point where they move to D.C. and they start getting involved in the court case because she's the driving force there. And I assume that's based on real life. Mm-hmm. But they I will show- say okay. early on that in particular one scene that I struck as that struck me as a missed opportunity is Loving gets left out of gets let out of jail and she's left in a terrifying position of being stuck in jail over the weekend and most of that two or three days is shown from the position of Loving who is concerned about his wife who's in jail but I think from a filmmaking perspective I bet that there's some really dramatic scenes you could have maybe not true to life with her experience in jail and that is somewhat 
you know, the the scene you get is when she's let out of jail, the sh- the sheriff overtly threatens her. But I that was a scene where I could say you could show a scene of her in jail during that time period of how terrifying it was being kept captive by this racist policeman that kind of left her story on the side while we saw it focused on a somewhat I think less interesting story of him being like how am I going to get her out of on bail how am I going to talk now it does show some of the systemic stuff but that was one of the examples early in the film where I think like focusing on him really left her side of the story out I can I can see that in that scene but then I don't know if I mean are you interested in them creating a drama that's not true to the story if that's not there I mean, we don't know if it's yeah because i don't i don't know not. if anything actually mm-hmm. happened i, I don't think know it was there uh if you there they interviewed mildred about that time period and she was terrified mm-hmm. uh, and you know like i said the scene where the sheriff says maybe i should put you in with her that actually happened so she was being terrorized yeah. and was that did days. that happen on his way to let her out of jail or just no. as a side yeah that's that's what i'm thinking no. yeah like her experience in jail like wow wouldn't it have been great to see, um, just as an educational experience, like how it's like to be in jail as a non-white person? Well, also, okay, so you're pregnant with your first child, mm-hmm. which is scary in and of itself, mm-hmm. and then you get arrested, and then you're in jail, and you have no idea when you're mm-hmm. going to be let out, mm-hmm. and there's an extremely hostile force all around you. Mm-hmm. When, I mean, basically, when you're pregnant with a child, you're only, your only, your main focus is uh, defense, right? Right. My job right now is to protect this thing that I'm intentionally mm-hmm. growing inside of me because I love my husband and I love this thing that we're growing and now I'm in this most dangerous, I'm completely vulnerable. How that wasn't yeah. conveyed at yeah. all. I, I actually, I did feel that from her and I thought that was a great acting choice on her part that the way she's in this fairly spacious cell for one person is she is in almost the fetal position. She is completely curled mm-hmm. up and protecting herself in a ball um, from any sort of, any passersby. And then when she's released, her instinct is to cover her stomach. She's protecting her belly. Yeah. Um, I think that came across. I thought her terror and her sort of vulnerability and her instinct to, um, you know, her motherhood instinct came through. And then, then Richard asks her if they hurt her. And she just kind of very, like, sadly and distantly says, like, no. I feel like there's a lot in her like they didn't hurt her physically but she doesn't want to she doesn't want to let on to him what she's actually feeling about and I think it. a lot of that has to do with their relationship I think she can tell that he feels powerless in the situation and he doesn't he's probably not used to that um, and she doesn't want to exacerbate the situation anymore by mm-hmm. telling him what happened to her and having or him relive sort of, that trauma right you so. know, I, Nicole, you're making me think about this movie, which I really appreciate. Because, you know, like, sometimes I feel like I, like I want to be someone who catches on to subtleties, but I'm just so, like, not that person often. And when Nicole was talking about how racism is back in the day, maybe, and to this day, is just, there's so much racism that happens, that occurs subtly, that is conveyed subtly, I just think that like you know there's that one part of me that's just like why aren't they outraged when the police come in their house why aren't they scared and visit like audibly screaming about it but like yeah you're nicole is right you know when the when the police come in that family 
back then in Virginia, just like a family now in the in the America that we live in today, they would they would know not to like they, yeah they they teach I've I've heard that black parents teach their children that from a very early age like don't cause a scene. I mean, mm-hmm. my family was right. like that too. Just I, I'm Filipino American. My my parents emigrated here from the Philippines in the '80s, and they always kind of taught me like don't bring attention to yourself. Don't rock the boat. Don't make waves. You're here so you can succeed in America and anything other than that. Just don't do because you'd be wasting your opportunity. And I think. I mean, I'm not black, and that's not the black experience. I don't think. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm wrong. But um, yeah, just like what Nicole was saying, it's they people might know better than to like. It's a privilege to scream out loud. No, it's a privilege to be able to like express yourself the way you want to. So I just wanted to circle back to that <laughs> because I've been I've been scratching my noggin about that. A lot of noggin scratchers. But I I think to your point. Um, her character and then Ruth Nega as an actress is so compelling mm-hmm. that it would have been nice just in general to have more of her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Whether that's before even the arrest happens and just, you know, their life together. Mm-hmm. Or, and, but it's it's already, a, I mean, it's a two-hour film. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel long or heavy-handed or anything like that, but I can imagine that there's a lot they probably had to edit out just to keep people in the seats. I mean, one of, the cons- one of my criticisms of this movie. I have, a, I have a mixed criticism and a real criticism. Uh, sort of the mixed criticism is this movie's very understated. From top to bottom, the characters are very subtle. Um, I think it's out. <laughs> uh, about their reactions to the what's happening to them. Um, which, at times, I think does a better job of Karen is checking a champagne bottle. Hey, oh. <laughs> uh, which at times I think it's, makes this movie less melodramatic than a lot of movies about race or racial topics can be. Like, this is the exact opposite of what, Crash. Detroit? I was thinking of Crash, <laughs> which is like as mm-hmm. melodramatic as possible. But the other thing is just generally biopics, where at the beginning of this movie, I know that it's not going to, if this is about a court case, it's not going to wrap up for 10 years. There are scenes where I'm like, yeah, I know this is not going to play into how this movie wraps up. When her son gets hit by a car, and then later we find out that her son is survived, and he's mostly okay, I'm like, okay, then I don't care, because the next scene is going to be five years in the future. And between the understatedness and the fact that I know that it's going to cover such a long period of time, there were scenes where I had a hard time latching onto the drama because I was like I know that we're going to skip ahead and this is going to get blown past the kids are basically not there they're, yeah. not, they're not characters, they're characters in the movie yeah. they're yeah. just dolls and I'm sure that like their experience throughout all of this was so hard and so confusing oh, definitely. why are there people in our house taking pictures and video camera-ing us like what is going on what's so wrong with our parents like, I'm sure that must have been so hard to understand so. You don't. You don't even get the scene where like one of the kids is like, "What's what's going on with all this, mommy?" And they have to have some sort of like put a nice face on it for the kids. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, the kids just basically are there to. Well, they love their kids. That's, they, that's part they show of. the passage of time. For yeah, being exa- yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I do think it would have been interesting to see um, how the children grew up if mm-hmm. they were in school, if they were told to never talk about 
you know, daddy being around because mm-hmm. he wasn't supposed to be at the state with them. Did they know there was a court case yeah, going I mean, on? I... I don't know if they even would need to know that, but just to know, like, that their parents' relationship is sort of off limits, that nobody could know mommy and daddy are together. Yeah, it's very hard to... There's stuff that is left on left out of this movie, and part of that, I think, is less to do with the subject matter and more like, well, this is going to cover a 10-year period of time, and so they have to be extremely picky about what goes into it but i think that leaves some stuff that would be interesting out out of the movie it's like there's a bunch of different movies you could make mm-hmm. from the material you mm-hmm. could make yeah. the the richard loving movie the mildred jeter movie mm-hmm. the kids say, the movie about the kids a, like, the movie about the lawyers you know mm-hmm. yeah a 10 part you know netflix yeah story right. on that's, this would be that's great it. it's they could do making of a murderer which is like here's the court case mm-hmm. from beginning to end in 10 hours or in two hours very lightly touch on a lot of things that happened in their life. And that was a criticism I had that's not specific to the subject matter, but is a issue with doing a biopic that covers like a 10 year span of this, I'm sure very complicated experience these two people went through. Yeah. Let's talk about the outfits. Goodness <laughs> gracious, the tailoring, the the quality of the fabrics, the the lines, the silhouettes, come on, you gotta give it up for the uh, the costume in loving. Yeah, I loved. She had this gorgeous blue um, overcoat on. Ooh, with Did the you le- love it? with the trim, yeah, like the leopard the red, trim. Yeah. Was it leopard or was it red? I don't know, but it was. It was great. It was bomb. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I remember that coat. Yes. I just laughed every time Nick Kroll was on screen because it's Nick Kroll. <laughs> <laughs> but he was in a sharp suit. He was in a sharp hat? suit. Oh my goodness, it was wonderful. Being a sleazy lawyer again is delightful. And I didn't I, know he was in that movie. I don't know how true it is that you know Richard Loving would have multiple suits and then she would have this this luxurious overcoat if they if he was a bricklayer and she was uh what was her job she was a she was picking was a stuff stay-at-home in, mom right stay-at-home mom her sister was they were picking, picking something picking yeah, something the in the fields they and showed her sewing quite a bit oh yeah she was maybe the, she was a seamstress maybe the lawyers provide the court clothes for but those that would be my guess oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. again hard to tell because you don't see as much time with well, yeah. uh, with Mildred um guys want to talk about these two movies together i mean i don't know know how you put these two movies together really aside from just that they involve interracial relationships well one of the movies seemed like it was kind almost against interracial relationships that was borderline yeah and then one of the movies loving was uh, more like you know interracial relationships are a good thing more or less in loving i mean loving it's safe to say Pre-assumes your moral stance. Yes. One hundred percent. I mean, I would say one of the I don't know. One criticism I'd have for Loving is that there, because of partly because I think the the speed at which it moves through time, their relationship is shown to be rock solid from top to bottom, and mm. they very rarely they run through one moment of strife, which is very end. I thought that was weird, actually. That scene. Yeah, he's and thinking then, he's going to divorce her because that'll make the problem go away. But he's really drunk, and then he just seems to forget about it in the morning. So, mm-hmm. right. I mean, she's basically like, "Our kid was hit by a car. We need to move back to Virginia." And he's like, "Okay." And that is as close as they get to in a ten-year period where they are the subject of a Supreme Court case, any sort of marital strife. And for the most part, he's just like, "Well, I don't agree with this, but I am going to go along with it." I thought that was an interesting. Um, striking difference, um, probably because it's based on a real character, but mm-hmm. to when we watched Suffragette, and her husband was sort of 
getting a hard time at work and was kind of whiny mm-hmm. and abandoned her and was sort of like, I, <laughs> yeah. don't, I don't want to be part of this movement. But um, it did seem like he sort of considered that in that one scene where the guy, it, he didn't suggest his divorce. Friend, a friend of a friend was saying, like, just divorce her. It's easy for you. For me, I don't have a solution. But for you, you just have to divorce her. Yeah. But, but he never took it out on her, at least no. not in the mm-hmm. movie. Not in you this know, movie. he was never less than supportive, you know. For the most part. I mean, there are definitely times... There was the point where he's like, I'm not going to the Supreme Court. And she's like, okay, well, I'm not going either. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think the subtext in that scene is... that That's after they explain that the mm-hmm. court's def- that the state's defense is going to be that they're going to call the children bastards right. and stuff. And what the lawyers don't get is he's like, why, why should I go... To, why should I go up to Washington, D.C., sit in this room and, and hear these lawyers call my children bastards, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it comes out even though he doesn't really say it. Yeah, no, I think so. I But, like, beyond that, he is... He's supportive of her. She's supportive of him. They go through a horrible experience, and you don't see any of the drama from that, to be honest. I mean, to be fair, the friend, I'm in my mind doing air quotes, um, who suggests the mm-hmm. divorce to him is the same character who was pretty anti the concept of marriage at the beginning anyway. Yeah, he just that's right. didn't like marriage. Was I don't like think he had any... A friend or something. Yeah, he didn't really seem to... He was car racing team, I think. Yeah, he didn't seem to have any actual, like animus towards interracial relationships or anything like that he just didn't like marriage as a concept so and to the listener his friend is a, a black man that's right who's saying in fact this. i think predominantly richard has black friends i don't think he has yeah, a white friend in the exclusively movie. he just works with white guys his, but mm-hmm. he's not friends with them his mom is white and she is like you shouldn't have done this um at one point in the movie and it kind of seems like she might have been the one that out i thought she was yeah because she was smiling when he was back home and sad that she was in jail right well, and i was like dang that mom is like hell is she but they doing? also invite them back in and allow mildred they deliver mildred's baby so, so maybe she came around on it it's a little hard to yeah tell. but then again it was at her house and it's like who it was her and mildred's family there who else would have turned them in after she I, had the I baby. I thought the implication it was a member of Mildred's family, but I, I, the movie doesn't really give us any solid evidence on who. Yeah. who it might could have, done have been it. Mildred's sister, maybe. Because I think but the she movie didn't want, she didn't want Mildred getting in trouble and getting yeah, arrested. That's true. But she I think the movie lays out eventually Mildred and Richard's mom come to some sort of understanding because they're like making dough together later. They're having a close emotional moment later in the movie, which to me at least implied like she's gotten over it or she's at least working towards she was playing with their daughter she had come over visited from virginia to dc and was like chilling with the grandkids so so i figured she probably my my reading was she sold them out at the initial time and then ultimately came around or at least became accepting of the grandkids in the documentary they do uh she is asked the mother is asked you know how do you feel about this and she basically if i remember correctly says i wasn't really behind it before but they love each other and i think that's fine okay <laughs> i think that comes across yeah. um well what's next on the <laughs> do we talk about interracial relationships should we talk about <laughs> what's in the news I mean, well let's, I, we can talk about our experiences i don't know um let me i just wanted to say a couple things that i i read yeah. a book called um Interracial Relationships and the Threat to White Supremacy. Oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't the full title. The full title is Loving Interracial Relationships and the Threat to White Supremacy. So, um, mm-hmm. And the first half of the book is about laws from uh, pre-revolution time, so colonial, 1600s, laws and the purpose of laws trying to keep races separate. And uh, one of the driving forces behind it was 
to have a slave workforce. Mm. Um, a lot of the laws they made were in order to allow, say, a white slave owner to have sex with his female slaves to produce more slaves because they made a law that said that her children are slaves. So mm. uh, there's a lot of horrifying laws on the books from the 1600s up until you know 1924 when mm. they made the law against interracial marriage specifically between black people and white people in the state of Virginia. Um, I think a lot of it being to to protect white supremacy by preventing people from creating um, relationships with each other so that they were right. no longer, I'm no longer in favor of whites being in power because I have a relationship with a person who's a non-white person. I have a loving relationship with that person. And they wanted to prevent that by creating these laws, making it illegal to do that. I, well, I want to add, I'll add this link at some point to our, our blog. Give me a second. I have to loop back to this. So there was an article in The Stranger, the local Seattle newspaper, where one of the editors had gone undercover into a white supremacist meeting. That was a secret meeting. So he basically made a fake backstory for himself as a white supremacist so that he could go to this meeting. And part of his back story that he created was that he was a film editor who'd written this essay about how Abraham Lincoln was like, should be a white supremacist icon because one of, and this is evidently true, according to that author, Abraham Lincoln was very against interracial breeding, having interracial children, and his plan, once the slaves were freed, was to ship them off to, I think it was Bermuda, basically round up the African-American workforce and and send them away. Um, And I just started thinking about that when you were talking about how this was not an accepted thing at that time and there is a certain amount of historical whitewashing that we do about past about how after slavery was ended how how integration was supposed to go that just made me think of it and I'll I'll post that link so you can read that article which is very interesting well I think it would be a waste if like the four folks in here who are in interracial relationships don't talk about their experiences in modern America with interracial relationships. Hi, everybody. You have come to the end of part one of season two, episode four, Borderline versus Loving. We had a lot to talk about, and this episode turned out to be about twice as long as our typical episode. And uh, Karen's suggestion that the conversation turn to the couples in the room and their personal experiences with interracial relationships happens to occur at just about the halfway mark. Uh, And then we shift into a completely different conversation than uh, talking about the movies. So part two picks up at the beginning of a conversation during which we spend an inordinate amount of time talking about uh, both a real and theoretical white lady in hot springs. Uh, But other than that, no spoilers. So if you want to know what's up with that lady in the hot springs, you'll have to listen to part two. It's available right now. I uploaded uh, both parts one and part two at the same time. So you can either continue or take a break, but I do encourage you to listen to that conversation. It was quite excellent. So thanks for listening.